You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I know you're ready to dive right into the facts, but first I want to tell you about another great podcast, Is This Entertainment? Not only are they sponsoring Your Brain on Facts this week, they also invited me to be on their show. We are going to talk about a favorite underrated movie of mine, no surprisingly not ravenous this time, the movie Priest, starring Paul Bettany and Carl Urban. Jacob and Ben over at Is This Entertainment talk about the music, movies, and TV shows we all know and love, and maybe some you don't know you love. They just finished recapping the last season of The Mandalorian, which my household has finally started watching, and they're going through WandaVision because we're all watching WandaVision. So look up Is This Entertainment on your podcast player or go to isthisentertainment.com. And if you're a more visual sort of person, we're also going to be on YouTube. Is This Entertainment Podcast. And if you're a new podcaster saying, oh man, I can't wait till my show is big enough that I can get sponsors, there's no need to wait. You just need to head over to another one of our sponsors today, Podcorn. Yes, the website that helps you find a sponsor also sponsors podcasts. They're just that good. Podcorn is free and easy to set up and use, and it connects small advertisers with with small podcasts to do host-read ads, topical discussions, interviews. It's all up to you. As the podcaster, you are in control. Podcorn has been so much more successful for me in terms of a return on the investment of my time than any other approach to podcast monetization that I've tried. So whether you have a small podcast or a small business and want to diversify your marketing a little bit, get direct to the people you're trying to reach, you've got to check out podcorn.com. And by the way, if you're like, yeah, Moxie, I'm glad you're getting money, but I don't want to listen to ads. You can also listen to the ad-free version over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. We're doing something a little different again today, and I want to tell you why, because not only do I think it's a good reason, I think it's a reason you're not going to hear from a lot of other podcasters when it comes to replaying episodes. First off, I'm not just flat out replaying an old episode. I went to that time-honored tradition of the random number generator online to select a number of episodes and the segments within the episode as well as getting suggestions from the folks over in the Facebook group, The Brainiacs Breakroom. And don't forget, you can easily find that and our subreddit by going to yourbrainonfacts.com social. In addition to all the usual reasons why I might not have a fully researched, scripted, recorded, and edited episode ready, I need to put a little bit of air in the podcast schedule. I have applied for a Guinness World Record for most guest segments on a podcast, because I'm planning on having 50 guest segments on the 150th episode. By the way, fellow podcasters, regardless of what type of show you do, I want you to record a fact and send it in. Now, I've only put in the application to get Guinness to consider this as a valid record they will judge. They say the application process can take 12 weeks. I want to make sure to give it the full amount of time necessary while still keeping the numbering of the episodes honest. Hence the need to bring some things out of the vault. The vault where, apparently, the audio is terrible. 
some of these old episodes, and maybe it's because I have done a podcast for three years and I now work in voiceovers. The audio sounds so bad. Bless every last one of you who has gone and listened to the back catalog, because I think if I had found this show in the early days, I never would have hung around. To me, it sounds that bad. So, segments with fair to middling audio I'm just going to use as is, but a couple I am going to re-record. And now, your feature presentation. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. From episode 63, Well-Traveled Bodies. In the winter of 1976, the Six Million Dollar Man TV show was filming in a haunted house in Long Beach, California. When a crew member went to move a garish-looking mummy to a different spot, the dummy's arm broke off at the elbow. It was then the crew member noticed the end of a human bone sticking out of the truncated limb. This wasn't a mannequin. This was Elmer McCurdy, a career criminal who had died 65 years earlier in Oklahoma. Elmer McCurdy was born on January 1, 1880 to an unwed mother and adopted to his aunt and uncle. The first 20 years of his life were fairly unremarkable, until a string of personal losses apparently led him to say, you know what, screw it, I'ma go rob some trains. A brief stint in the army had seen him trained to use nitroglycerin for demolition, and he decided to merge the two careers. The trouble was, he tended to be heavy-handed with the explosives, once costing his gang 90% of the money in the safe that he blew, and the 10% they did get was in coins that were melted together. McCurdy's final robbery took place on October 4, 1911, near Okiza, Oklahoma, when McCurdy and his men mistakenly stopped a passenger train instead of the one carrying $400,000 that they were after. The men were only able to steal $46 from the mail clerk, some whiskey, a pistol, and the conductor's watch. A newspaper account of the robbery later called it one of the smallest in the history of train robbery. Even still, a $2,000 bounty was put on McCurdy, and someone gave him up. In the wee hours of October 7th, a posse of sheriffs tracked McCurdy to a hay shed using bloodhounds. Gunfire was exchanged for over an hour, and in the end, McCurdy was shot and killed. McCurdy's body was subsequently taken to the Johnson Funeral Home over in Pawhuska, where it went unclaimed. Joseph L. Johnson, the owner and undertaker, embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative, far in excess of what was in use at the time, and stored the body in the back of the funeral home, refusing to bury or release it until he was paid for his services. Johnson then decided if he was gonna make any money out of this situation, he'd have to be proactive. He dressed the corpse up in street clothes, placed a rifle in McCurdy's hand, and stood him up in the corner of the funeral home. For a nickel, visitors could see the bandit who wouldn't give up. McCurdy became a popular attraction at the funeral home and attracted the attention of carnival promoters, though Johnson refused numerous offers to buy the mummified body. In 1916, a man claiming to be Albert McCurdy's long-lost brother got permission from the sheriff to take custody of the body and ship it to San Francisco for a proper burial. The following day, Johnson released the body to this man and his associate, who then 
hooded on a train bound for Arkansas City, Kansas. The men who claimed to be McCurdy's long-lost brothers were, in fact, James and Charles Patterson, owners of the Great Patterson Carnival Shows, where McCurdy's corpse would be featured until 1922, when Patterson sold his operation to Lewis Sonny. Sonny used McCurdy's corpse in his traveling Museum of Crime show, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws like Bill Doolin and Jesse James. In 1928, the corpse became part of the official sideshow that accompanied the Trans-American Foot Race. In 33, it was acquired for a time by director Dwayne Esper to promote his exploitation film, Narcotic, with an exclamation point. So you gotta say it dramatically. In a very William Castle kind of move, the corp was placed in the lobby of theaters as a dead dope fiend. By this time, some 22 years after his death, McCurdy's body had become mummified, the skin was hard, and the body had shriveled in size considerably. Esper claimed the skin's deterioration was proof of the danger of drugs. McCurdy's corpse would bounce between warehouses and movie sets for the next four decades. Through those years, damage from mishandling meant that McCurdy's corpse was no longer all that lifelike, which was how it came to be found in the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse exhibition at the Pike in Long Beach. After it was discovered that he wasn't a mannequin, McCurdy was sent to the LA coroner. By this time, the body was basically petrified. It had been covered in layers of wax and phosphorescent paint. It weighed about 50 pounds or 23 kilos and was only 36 inches or 160 centimeters long. Some hair was still visible on the sides and back of the head, but his ears, big toes, and fingers were missing. Of all the clues that led the coroner and historians to determine the mummy's identity, the most interesting was found in his mouth. It had nothing to do with his teeth, but was a 1924 penny and ticket stubs to the 140 West Pike Sideshow and Lewis Sonny's Museum of Crime. The discovery made national headlines and an actual distant relative came forward to claim McCurdy's body, which was buried in April of 1977 in the Boot Hill section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma, next to a considerably more successful outlaw, Bill Doolin, and under two feet of concrete. From episode 94, My Name is Mud. We consider it a hallmark of Americana, right up there with hot dogs and apple pie, which are German and British, respectively. But we'll gloss over that for right now. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. We're talking about the value of mud to Major League Baseball. Quick bonus fact, Jack Norworth, who wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game, wouldn't actually attend a baseball game until three decades after he wrote the song. For major league pitchers, getting a grip is serious business. A grip on the ball, that is. It's important that they have control of the ball before launching it at another human being at the same speed as a car on the highway. That's where mud comes in, specifically Lena Blackburn's original baseball rubbing mud. Wait, wouldn't putting mud on the ball make it slippery? Surprisingly, no. Fresh out of the box, baseballs are glossy and slippery, 
meaning they can leave the pitcher's hand wrong and go whichever way they jolly well please. The mud is used to lightly roughen the surface of the leather to give it some texture. But not just any old mud will do. The story of this special mud begins, as many innovations do, in tragedy. On August 16, 1920, in the fifth inning of a game between the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees, Cleveland shortstop Ray Chapman was struck in the head by a fastball thrown by Yankees pitcher Carl Mays, causing a severe brain injury that would kill him later that night. To this day, Chapman remains the only Major League Baseball player to die as a result of an incident on the field. His death forced the MLB to find some way to make the game safer. Your mind might leap immediately to batting helmets. Theirs didn't. Various types of protective headgear had been tried, but it took a near-fatal skull fracture during a game in 1937 before players were really that interested in wearing them. Even then, batting helmets were optional for another 20 years. Another approach could have been a more strict policing of the practice of headhunting by pitchers, throwing the ball near or at the batter's head to drive him back from crowding the plate and make the strike zone smaller. But no, they didn't go that way either. What the MLB opted for instead in 1921 was a rule still in effect today that required, quote, the umpire shall inspect the baseballs and that they are properly rubbed so that the gloss is removed. Making a rule is easy. Executing it, often less so. Various methods and substances from shoe polish to tobacco juice were tried, the most popular of which was rubbing the balls with infield dirt, sometimes mixed with a little water. This worked too well though, it scuffed up the leather in a way that would change the flight path of the ball, something some pitchers still use when they can get away with it. What they really needed was a consistent way to remove the gloss without darkening the ball too much, without scuffing it up, and without getting gunk stuck in the laces, which would also alter the flight path. Enter Philadelphia Athletics third base coach, Russell Aubrey Lena Blackburn who was a player himself when Chapman was killed. He was also an avid fisherman who spent his off-seasons fishing in the backwaters of the Delaware River near his home in Palmyra, New Jersey. Reasoning that the infield dirt was too abrasive, Blackburn experimented with the ultra-soft mud from the bottom of the Delaware River. The soft, almost pudding-like consistency of the mud allowed it to work as an ultra-fine grit buffing agent. You only get that consistency in certain parts of the river where tributaries bring in finer grain sediment. Just as he'd hoped, a tiny bit of mud took the gloss off the ball without staining or damaging it. As a bonus, it didn't smell like some of the other things they'd tried. Soon, Blackburn was selling his original baseball rubbing mud to every American League team, but only the American League. He wouldn't sell it to their rivals, the National League, because he'd been an American League player, though he would eventually relent in the 1950s. To this day, Major League Baseball still uses this same mud, though the company has passed to John Haas, a friend of Blackburn's, upon his death, and since passed to Haas's son-in-law, Burns Bintliff, and today it's run by Burns's son, Jim.
The location of the annual July to August mud harvest, which yields about 1,000 pounds or 454 kilos, is a closely guarded secret. So secret, in fact, that Jim had had two children with his wife before he deemed her trustworthy enough to tell her where the secret spot was. He makes about $20,000 a season for the effort. Even though the product is now sold to the public, it's also popular with the National Football League for adding grip to new footballs and is used on 200,000 baseballs per season. Such a small amount is needed per ball that the MLB only uses two 32-ounce buckets, which retail for $75 each. I guess just a dab will do you. Bonus fact, there's an old story that the expression, your name is mud, comes from Dr. Samuel Mudd, with two Ds, who unwisely took pity on John Wilkes Booth, President Lincoln's assassin. Mudd treated the broken ankle that Booth suffered in his leap to the stage in Ford's theater. For his trouble, Mudd was sentenced to life in a federal prison. But as is often the case with etymology, the most interesting story is just a story. The phrase, his name is Mudd, first appeared in print in 1820, 45 years before the assassination. It probably originated in an obscure bit of English slang. Mud was an 18th century equivalent to dope or dolt or meaning an unintelligent person and was used through the 19th century by union workers for the strike breakers that would also come to be known as scabs. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. From way back in episode 16, Mummy's Day. While the best-known mummies were made by men, some mummies are made by nature. And perhaps the perfect environment on Earth for this is in the high Andes Mountains and the Atacama Desert that lies between them and the sea. The children of Yuyayako are three Incan child mummies rediscovered in March of 1999 
by Dr. Johann Reinhard and his archaeological team near the summit of Yuyolaika, a 22,000-foot or 6,700-meter stratovolcano in the Andes. The children were sacrifices in an Incan religious ritual referred to as the Capacoca, which is believed to have taken place around the year 1500. In this ritual, the three children were drugged and allowed to freeze on top of the mountain, and then they were moved to a small chamber, five feet or 1.5 meters beneath the ground. According to Dr. Reinhard, the mummies appear to be the best preserved Incan mummies ever found, and other archaeologists have expressed the same opinion, calling them among the best preserved mummies in the world. Yuyalaiko is located in the Atacama Desert, the driest non-polar desert on Earth. Its annual rainfall is less than one inch per year. Dryness and cold temperatures are both major reasons for the excellent preservation of the mummies these 500 years. Child sacrifice, or Capacoca, was an important part of the Incan religion and was often used to commemorate important events, as offerings to the gods in time of famine and as a way of asking for protection. Sacrifice could only occur with the direct approval of the Incan emperor. Children were chosen from all over the vast Incan empire. They were generally sons and daughters of noble and local rulers, but were picked primarily based on their, quote, physical perfection. They were then taken hundreds or thousands of miles to the capital of Cusco, where they were the subject of important purification rituals. For up to a year, they were well-fed and cared for, giving up their potato-based diet for one rich in meats. They would be given coca leaves and alcohol before being taken to the high mountaintops. According to traditional Incan belief, children who were sacrificed do not truly die, but instead watch over the land from their mountaintop perches alongside their ancestors, and thus being chosen was a great honor. The frigid, arid conditions effectively freeze-dried the bodies. They still had hair on their arms, their internal organs were intact, and one of the hearts actually contained frozen blood. Because the mummies froze and then dehydrated, the desiccation and shriveling of the organs typical in human remains never took place. The mummies have been the subject of controversy, and not just because somebody claimed to have found an alien mummy among them. Rogelio Guanaco of the Indigenous Association of Argentina called the display of the mummies a violation of our loved ones, saying that Yuyulaiko continues to be sacred for us. Researchers should never have profaned that sanctuary, and they should not put our children on exhibition as if in a circus. Fermin Tolaba chief of the Lules, said the mummies should have stayed in their territory. And now that the mummies are already exhumed, the museum would have to return them. It is not good that the museum is earning money with that, charging an admission for something that doesn't belong to it. The High Andes region from which the mummies were taken is believed to be home to at least 40 other similar ritual burial sites. However, in order to have good relations with the indigenous people, no more mummies will be removed from the area, according to Gabriel Miermont, designer and director of the Museum of High Altitude Archaeology, which hosted the exhibit displaying the mummies.
Bonus fact, even the animals native to the Andes have trouble dealing with the altitude, thin air, and dryness. Llamas and alpacas are prone to spontaneous abortion, or offspring, called crias, that die immediately after birth. But the crias get a second life. They dry out, like everything else in that environment, and are used in folk medicine and practices. For example, it's believed that if you bury a dried crea on a construction site, it will keep the workmen safe. Now that my husband and I both work from home, I get to see how much coffee he actually drinks in the course of a day. I only became a coffee drinker myself a couple of years ago. I always try to get the most out of our coffee, doing things like composting the grounds afterwards, very good for blueberry bushes. But what if you could do something truly good when you're having your cuppa? I want to tell you about free lunch coffee. They're on a mission to end hunger in the lives of young children. When you buy a single bag of free lunch coffee, you're also providing 10 meals to children in need. And free lunch coffee gives away 50% of the money they make to end childhood hunger. How amazing is that? But wait, there's more. The coffee is specialty grade, certified organic, and fair trade. And if you should find that you like the concept more than the actual coffee, which you won't, there is a 30-day, 100% money-back guarantee if you don't absolutely love the coffee. So head on over to freelunchcoffee.com and get 15% off your order with the coupon code HISTORYLOVE, two words. 15% off with the coupon code HISTORYLOVE at freelunchcoffee.com. From episode 49, It's a Small Plate After All, and the Your Brain on Facts book. In fact, this segment is from my recording session for the audiobook version. Who else gets hungry when they've been drinking? Good, then around the world we go. When the superstars of beer making tie one on, Germans enjoy currywurst, fried pork sausage smothered in a spiced ketchup or tomato sauce, with fries naturally. In Thailand, their drunk food of choice is ko fat, fried rice with meat, egg, onion, garlic, tomatoes, and cucumber. Mexico turns to tacos, especially barbacoa, lingua, or tongue, and tripe. Tripe, cow's stomach, also features in their hangover cure, a soup called menudo. To the north in Canada, it's poutine, French fries doused with gravy and cheese curds to soak up the booze. Across the pond, they go out for kebabs, pita stuffed with thinly sliced meat, veggies, and various sauces. Bonus fact, kebab refers to the meat, shish refers to the skewer, and donor means it was cooked on a rotisserie. And yes, I used the British pronunciation, kebab. In the Philippines, people go for sizik, a sweet and spicy dish made with a pig's head and liver, chili peppers, and calamansi fruit. Discerning even when drunk, Italians love a fatty, herbaceous pork roast sliced into pieces and stuffed between thick, buttery slices of bread. In India in general, and Mumbai specifically, the drunk food of choice is burji pav, a spiced scrambled egg with bread. Mandazi, also called a Swahili coconut, 
is popular in Kenya and can be eaten savory or sweet. Sri Lanka favors katu, a mixture of chopped vegetables, stir-fried egg, spices, and shredded gadamba roti, thin fried bread. Jiangbing, a Chinese-style savory crepe, is not only a popular late-night snack in China, but also a breakfast food. In the land formerly known as Czechoslovakia, people enjoy smazeni sir, a thick slice of emmental or other cheese that's breaded and fried and often accompanied by tartar sauce. South Korea chows down on tteokbokki and odeng. Tteokbokki is a spicy stir-fried rice cake dish, and odeng is a type of fish cake. Ramen pairs well with drinking in Japan. It's not the plain bowl of dorm room noodles, but comes with all the toppings like you see in anime. Akarahe is a traditional street food found in Brazil. These black-eyed pea fritters are often served with a shrimp paste center. While all these foods sound great, the award for king of drunk food goes to Scotland for creating the Munchie Box, a pizza box filled with fried, greasy, drunk food like fried chicken, pizza, kebab meat, onion rings, fries, garlic bread, and if you're lucky, a deep-fried Mars bar. From episode 109, Against All Odds, Lone Survivor. We're all going through some degree of hardship right now, but most of us have family or friends in person or via technology to help us through. In that respect alone, we're doing a lot better than the subjects of today's episode. Take, for instance, Ricky McGee in 2006. When he stumbled in front of a pickup truck of two Australian ranch workers, jackaroos in the local parlance, his deeply sun-scorched skin hung off his skeleton. They weren't even sure they were looking at a man and not some demon of the northern outback. Things had been considerably better for McGee ten weeks earlier. The 35-year-old was hale and hearty and had just landed a new job. Driving along a barren North Australia highway, he spotted a group of stranded travelers and their vehicle on the side of the road. Knowing it could be a long time before anyone else came by, he let some of the men get into his car to drop them at the next town. That was the last thing McGee could clearly remember. He came to in the middle of the desert, stripped naked and barefoot under the harsh sun, which, bonus fact, bombards Australia with more UV rays than other continents because of the hole in the ozone layer. McGee had nothing, not even a notion of which way to go. Waiting for help to find him seemed fruitless, so he began to walk. Each morning, he told himself, today was the day. Today he would see a house or a town, at least a road he could follow. Each day ended the same as the day before. There was one ameliorating factor in his situation. The rainy season had just ended, and there was water to be found. He found a decent-sized water hole and began to try to make a shelter. One week had ticked by before food, in the form of a lizard, crossed McGee's path. He was able to catch and kill it with his bare hands, laying the meat out in the sun to dry. McGee's diet was made up of anything that walked, crawled, or slithered past him. Lizards, snakes, grasshoppers, bugs, and even leeches. After his ordeal, McGee said that the leeches weren't bad, but you had to eat them quickly, otherwise they'd attach to the inside of your mouth. 
He also ate any plant that passed a taste test, which is not, strictly speaking, the best way to find non-poisonous plants. But he got lucky. His diet was diverse, but not plentiful. Calories were thin on the ground, no pun intended. Dingoes had begun prowling around, trying to decide if he was meat yet. Starving, weakening, and beginning to despair, McGee fashioned a cross for the top of his shelter. It seemed likely that the shelter would become his casket. But he managed to stay alive. When he'd been carjacked, McGee weighed 233 pounds, or about 105 kilograms. When the Jackaroos found him, he only weighed 100 pounds, or 45 kilograms. But he was alive. He managed to keep himself going alone in the desert for 71 days in what his rescuers described as one of the most isolated places in Australia. McGee was flown to the Royal Darwin Hospital, where medical staff described him as emaciated but well hydrated, a credit to his decision to stay at the waterhole. Police and the media were initially suspicious of McGee's story, assuming that his previous minor drug offense must have meant he'd been up to dirty deals with dirty dealers, and that's how he ended up stranded. His stolen car never turned up, which would have helped his story. McGee even offered to eat a frog on live TV. But thankfully, Bush survival experts weighed in that his story was plausible. So no more frogs for Ricky McGee. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I hope you found this upcycled assortment of segments to be edifying and entertaining. I do not like the word edutainment, but hey, I'll take it. There will be one, maybe two more like this, while I wait to hear back from the Guinness World Records people. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.